know that all the law and the prophets point to Christ, and so we ask that even here in this text you would show us Jesus. And we ask, O Lord, that you would strengthen our faith in you, that you would uh, uh, increase our trust in you, that we would glorify and honor you. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you this evening. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, I suppose most of you, if not all of you, are probably familiar with the concept of a trust fall. Uh, maybe when you were young and you had a younger sibling, uh, you encouraged them to practice the trust fall. I know that uh, my older brother and sister did, and I, in turn, encouraged my younger siblings to trust me. The problem when siblings encourage each other to take a trust fall is sometimes it does not encourage trust. It has the opposite effect. But the purpose of a trust fall is, in fact, to encourage uh, trust between two different parties. You know that one person stands behind the other, and the person in front is supposed to fall backwards into the waiting arms of the second party, where they will be caught and they will be safe. They shouldn't fall down and hurt themselves. They, they should be received and cared for, protected. They should build up trust between two people. In our text this evening, in our text this evening, God essentially tells Israel, fall backwards into my arms, if you will. He calls Israel to trust in him. That is the underlying point of this entire text here in Malachi 3, verse 6 through 12. And you remember as we've gone through this book that, that the Lord has brought charge against charge against charge uh, against Israel. They have uh, defiled worship. Their priests haven't been doing the job they're supposed to do. They've, they've defiled their, their covenants with one another, their marriage covenant. And last week we saw this glorious promise of God that he was going to come himself to purify them, to, to bring them to himself. And you remember at the end of our text last week, we actually looked at Verse 6, which we will look, again, uh, look at again this evening because it, it really connects the two texts. But suffice it to say, in, in this passage this evening, God has gone through all of that. And now, after he said all of these things to Israel, after he's promised that he himself will be their savior and will purify them, he calls on them to return to him, to come back to him, to put their wholehearted trust in him, the one who cares for them. In these few verses in Malachi, we see this, this main idea here that God calls his people to return to him, to trust in him because he's the one who cares for them. God calls you, dear Christian, to always turn to him, to always trust in him because he is the one who cares for you. We see here two uh, general divisions of this text. First, God's call for his people to return to him in verses 6 through 9. And second, 
God's promise, God's reminder to his people that he is the one who cares for them. He will provide for them in verses 10 through 12. Two simple little sections, but, but together they show us God's call to his people to place all of their trust in him and in him alone. Well, with those things in mind, let's go ahead and look at what God says specifically so that we can see how he calls his people to trust in him, the one who cares for them. Verses six through nine, we see this kind of main thing that God is calling his people to uh, return to him or to turn away from themselves, really. We read in those verses, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. It may not seem like it from those last few verses. What God really is doing here is calling in His, calling on His people, excuse me, to trust in Him, to return to Him. He begins this section by uh, rebuking Israel for their unfaithfulness and calling them to turn away from their unfaithfulness. Verse six is is the the tie-in from what we saw last week to what we see this week. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. You remember in chapter 2, verse 17, the people of Israel uh, were complaining against God, making him uh, weary from their complaints by saying, essentially, God has changed. God isn't the same God that he was to our fathers. God rewards unrighteousness now, or he just really doesn't care what anybody does these days. And God reminds them that he is not of the God who changes. He is immutable. He's unchanging. He's always faithful to, to what he said he will do. And then, going from verse 6 to verse 7, God reminds Israel that they are the ones who change. Indeed, they are the ones who have changed over and over and over again as the generations have continued. He rebukes Israel for turning aside from his ways. In verse 7, he says, From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. From the days of their fathers. You see, unfaithfulness to God... And been a pattern of the lives of the people of Israel. Now, they would have uh, good periods and bad periods. There were times of, of reformation and revival in the nation of Israel. Glorious times when, when the people would say, oh, we, we see the law of God now and, and we realize that we've been sinning against him and we ought not to do that anymore. And so they would repent and they would turn back to God and they would pursue right worship and they would pursue a following after all of God's ways. But then the rot would set in again and there would be times of rebellion against God. And so there was always this kind of fluctuation and, and pattern in Israel. From the days of the fathers, they had turned aside from God's statutes and had not kept them. 
God says, I've remained the same throughout all of this time, but it's you, Israel, who are constantly changing. You are the ones who keep turning away from me. It's not the other way around. Now, lest we be arrogant, uh, look down our nose at the people of Israel, lest we think, oh man, how can those people keep turning away from God? Remember, remember, dear people, that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. There's not a single one of us who does not daily sin against the Lord, sin against each other in our thoughts or our words or our deeds. We have the law of God just as clearly, if not more clearly, because of Christ than the people of Israel. So let's not look at them condescendingly and say, well, I can't believe these people. How could they? constantly turn away from God. We too are, are sinners in need of the Lord's forgiveness. We too need to return to the Lord. And that's what he does here in the second half of verse seven. He, he says, return to me. God reminds Israel of his forgiveness and his love. He's, he's declared that he's not changed. He's always the same, which means he's always the God who forgives, who loves to forgive, who loves to save sinners. He desires Israel's repentance. He says, return to me and I will return to you. Come back to me. He says, and he says the same thing to us, doesn't he? By his spirit, when we sin, doesn't the spirit convict us of sin and say, return to Christ. Return to the one who loves your soul and whom your soul loves. Repent, flee back to Christ. Return to the Lord because he is the loving and forgiving God. Well, our response should be to return. Our response should be to repent and, and to flee back to Christ. Israel here, however, says, how shall we return? In what way should we return? Should we return? It's the sense of the question here. They seem to fail to understand, even after having been reprimanded and, and rebuked and chastised by God throughout their history that there is something wrong. They don't think that there's anything to return from. They don't really see a problem. And so God hones in on a, a particular area of their uh, disobedience, their rebellion, their sinfulness that they can return from, giving them specifics to help them to focus uh, their trust in him. Their particular unfaithfulness, as we see in verses 8 and 9, is the fact that they are robbing God by neglecting the tithes and offerings. God says in verse 8 and 9, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes, and contributions. So you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Israel's neglecting to bring the tithes and offerings to God. Now, you remember that uh, the tithes were established by God in Leviticus 28, not 28, excuse me, 27, when God told Israel that they were to set aside. Uh, every tenth of their harvest, every tenth of, of the animals that would be born to him because that portion of their uh, harvest, of their flocks, 
of all that they had, the portion of their increase was holy to God. So it was already set aside to God's purposes. It was already sanctified to God, but Israel was supposed to say, okay, this is God's and we are supposed to bring it to him. Now, sometimes we might think, well, that's actually could be quite a bit, couldn't it? Well, if you have 100 sheep and a tenth of that is, is 10 sheep, that's, that's quite a few sheep. But we might tend to forget that um, a 90% commission from God is a very generous commission, isn't it? We might look and say, oh, 10% needs to go to God. But in reality, everything belongs to the Lord. And yet here he told Israel, 90% belongs to you. I'll give you 90%. You set aside the tenth for me. And this was used to support the priests and the worship of God, as we're uh, told in Numbers 18. Now, this isn't a tax on Israel. In fact, there were other taxes appointed. But this was a means which God used to call Israel to put their trust in him, to thank him for all that he'd given to them, for all of his, his kind provision for them. It's not as though God is saying, well, I'm your king and your ruler, and so I'm extracting this that belongs to you from myself. No, God is saying, I am your God and your provider. I am giving you 90%, but I want 10% set aside for the work of worship. However, though that was God's law, though God had established this, in Israel, uh, the people were not doing this in Malachi's day. They're robbing God. They're saying, no, the whole 100% belongs to me. I've earned this. This is mine. It was by the sweat of my brow that these crops were harvested. I'm the one who tended these flocks of sheep. I, I watched over them in the cold of night. I beat off the wolves and the lions. No, this is, this is mine. Taking what God had given them and, and gripping it and holding tight to it and refusing to, to bring to God that portion which he'd set aside for himself. Now, perhaps one of the reasons the Israelites were, were saying this is, or doing this is because of what they said about God in uh, chapter 2, verse 17, when they were saying, well, God, uh, he's changed. He rewards evil. He delights in wickedness. He doesn't care about us anymore. He's not going to provide for us anymore. So uh, we can't really depend on God anymore. So instead of giving him uh, what he has called us to give him. We're just going to keep all of this for ourselves so we can take care of ourselves. We'll depend on ourselves. They were neglecting to bring their tithes and contributions to God in direct disobedience to his law. They were bringing offerings. The priests weren't teaching them how they should bring offerings and weren't teaching them other things, but they were basically saying, no, everything's all right. We're fine. We're going to do things our way. We don't want to do things God's way. And this is really a very widespread problem. It's not as though Malachi is, is approaching a, a small pocket of people in Israel because God says, you're cursed with a curse for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. There's a widespread problem in Israel, a, a pandemic 
of distrust in God. They're not trusting God to take care of them, so they're not bringing God's tithes and offerings to him. Whole nation of them. And it's interesting that the Lord says the nation of you. He doesn't often refer to Israel as, as a nation. The Hebrew word is, is goyim. This is usually referred or used to refer to the nations that surround Israel, the pagans, the ones who don't know God, who don't worship him. God says, essentially here, all of you are acting like all of the nations which surround you. You're not acting like my people. It's widespread. And so their refusal to obey God results in covenant curses. God says in verse nine, you're cursed with a curse. Cursed with a curse. God once again reminds them that, that this disobedience to him is, is a failure to uphold the terms of the covenant. Now in a few weeks, we're, we're reading through Deuteronomy. In a few weeks, we'll come to Deuteronomy chapter 28, and that's where God lays out the blessings of the covenant and the curses of the covenant. God says, obey me, follow my ways, and I'll pour out blessings upon you. The nations will, will see that you trust in me as your God, and they will see how I take care of you and this will be a light to the nations, he says. But if you don't do this, then there's going to be curses. Your harvests will fail. You'll be conquered by your enemies. These are pretty terrible things. But the reason God gave those blessings and curses was to remind them, first of all, of his sovereignty, but also remind them that he and he alone is their savior that they ought to trust in him and and him alone for their their health and their life that they ought to trust the god of the covenant but they weren't they weren't here in Malachi's day. Their lack of tithing is a symptom of their unbelief. They're not trusting the Lord as their savior. They're not trusting him as their king. They're not trusting him as the one who, who in the past had delivered them from Egypt, who ruled over them as they were wandering in the wilderness, provided for them and cared in them. They weren't trusting this God of the covenant. They were trusting in themselves. Trusting in themselves. So what does God say to this or about this? Well, he told them to return. And after he says that they're cursed with a curse, after he says that they have these, these covenant curses placed upon them to cause them to look back to him, to return to him, he reminds them of his graciousness, of the fact that he is the God who provides. He is the one who cares for us. In verses 10 through 12, he reminds his people, he's the one who provides for all of our needs. All of them. Verses 10 through 12, the Lord says these things to Israel and to us. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. 
Your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. God could have ended this a rebuke of Israel, this discourse with, you were cursed with a curse and left it at that. He'd already told them to return to him, but, but now he reminds them of who he is what he, he can and will do for his people and blessing them and providing for them. God says, bring the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And why? Why should they bring these tithes? Is it just because God once wrote obedience? Is it just because he's like, well, this is my law. Do this because you have to do this. No, he gives them a reason doesn't have to, but he does. He gives them a reason. He says, by doing this, put me to the test. Test me. Try me. I've promised to care for you. I have taken care of you throughout the ages, providing for you. I gave you bread from heaven, angels food. Try me. Bring the tithe into my house and see what I will do for you. God reminds his people that he is the great provider. He is the one who brings forth food from the earth. He is the one who, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He reminds them that he is the one who clothes the lilies of the field and the one who feeds the birds of the air. And we ought to trust him. We have to trust fully in this God to provide for us. He is the one who gives us those things which we need for the body. This, this trust in God to provide all that we need is perhaps a difficult trust at some time, but one which is, which is uh, profoundly demonstrated throughout history by various people. Uh, one of my, uh, I guess maybe heroes of the faith is, as far as regards trusting the Lord's provision and, and prayers, a man by the name of George Mueller. He was, he was a German who moved to England in the 19th century and was a very godly man, uh, very prayerful man who trusted in the Lord to provide all of his needs. He set up orphanages in England. And one of my favorite stories about Mueller is one morning at the orphanage, they didn't have any bread. And the children came to him and, and said, well, we don't have anything to eat, Mr. Mueller. Well, what should we do? And he said, well, we need to ask God. We should pray for God to provide for us. And so they, they prayed. And as soon as they had finished praying and trusting the Lord to provide for them, there was a knock at the door. And the milkman said, my wagon wheel just broke. I can't deliver all of this milk. Could you use some? Mr. Mueller and the children praised the Lord and they said, yes, we could. So they had milk for breakfast. And then not long after that, a baker came and knocked on the door. And he said, Mr. Mueller, I was woken up in the middle of the night last night and thought, I need to bake bread for the orphans. And so I've baked all of this bread for you. Can you use it? Mr. Mueller said, praise the Lord. Yes, we can. So the Lord provided for the needs of his people. And he provided abundantly. 
The same God who provided for George Mueller is the same God who tells Israel, put me to the test. See if I will not provide because the Lord will provide. He is the great provider. The Lord calls Israel here to trust in his provision. And this should be a reminder to us or should direct our gaze from maybe the, the temporal to the eternal, from the physical to the spiritual of the fact that the same God who provides the physical needs of Israel, who promises to provide the physical needs of Israel, who provides the physical needs for us today is the same God who provides all of our spiritual needs in Christ. We must trust the Lord to provide these spiritual needs just as much as we trust him to provide our physical needs. Israel was thinking perhaps we have to depend on ourselves to provide for us, but men can't make a single plant grow out of the ground, can they? can't provide for ourselves. It is the Lord who must provide for us. How much more or how much less perhaps can we cause any spiritual good to grow in our lives? If we can't cause a single plant to grow for our nourishment, we can't cause any spiritual life to spring up in us for our spiritual good. We must trust in the Lord to do this and he does. The Lord has made provision for the salvation of our souls in Christ. And he calls to us, trust me. Put me to the test. See if I will not give you everything which you need for life and godliness in Christ. See if I will not provide for you a savior who will save you to the uttermost. God has provided all things for us, for life in godliness, he's given us Christ, the Savior of our souls. We must trust in him. God provides for his people. He provided for the people of Israel. He told the people of Israel he would provide for them. He would also, he said, prosper them. It wasn't just a bare provision. The bare necessities taken care of. God says, I'm going to give you a lot. Bounty. Glorious, glorious bounty for my glory. He says, he would open the windows of heaven and pour down for them a blessing until there was no more need. He is the one who causes the rain to fall and he would cause the rain to fall upon their land to grow all of their crops, to grow the grass which the sheep and cattle needed to feed on. He would rebuke the devourer for them so that it would not destroy the fruits of the soil. God would prevent any destruction of their crops uh, by this devourer. Now, this is most likely talking about locusts or other pests uh, which would come and uh, eat all the plants. Now, locusts are a kind of grasshopper and sometimes the young locusts uh, make gangs, swarms, large groups of them. They're teenagers, so they're obviously very hungry. And they go around and eat all of the plants in a certain area. And this happened many times in the ancient world and it would uh, cause famine to occur. So the people would be without food because the locusts came and ate everything. But God says, I'll rebuke the destroyer. Vent the destruction of your crops by locusts so that you are provided for and, and they will not uh, eat the, the fruit of your soil. 
You'll have provision that way. That's quite a promise from God. That's a lot. But he also says, your vine in the field shall not fail to bear. Now, I have tried a couple times to plant a garden. I can count on my fingers the amount of times uh, my pepper plants or tomato plants or squash plants have actually produced anything that I could eat. Now, that's more an indictment on my ability as a gardener than anything else. But can you imagine planting a garden and not a single one of your tomato vines fails to produce tomatoes? Not a single one of your squash plants fails to produce squash your grapevines always have grapes. Your trees always bear fruit. That is what the Lord promises to his people. He says, I will provide for you, and I'm not just going to provide a little bit for you. I'm going to give you abundant food in my provision for you because I am the gracious and kind God. This is an amazing promise from the Lord. This is amazing. No famine, God says, provision and bountiful provision, so much so that the nations will call you blessed. These pagan nations, the ones that Israel was behaving like and their lack of trust in God, would see all which God was doing for his people. They would see the blessings that he was pouring out on them. They would see who the true God is. They would see how he cares for men. Israel's trust in God and and, and the blessings which God would pour out upon them would, would show the nations that they too should trust in this God, that they should come to the true and living God, that they should worship him, that they should serve him, that they should trust in the only savior of men. They should glorify the Lord. The nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. A land of plenty. A land which demonstrates my glory, my greatness, and my bountiful provision for all of my people. What a great and glorious and kind God this is. He says to Israel, right now, you're under a curse because of your transgression against my law, but I will reverse that. Trust in me. I will take that curse and turn it into a blessing. I will provide for you most bountifully. As I said, this really ought to to point us to the provision which God has made for us in Christ, a bountiful provision more than we can imagine. It ought to remind us that in Christ we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It ought to direct our our focus and gaze to him who who loves us and and cares for us and and takes care of us. It ought to help us to trust in him. Well, while that is really probably the the best thing that this text can do in pointing us to Christ. I think there's probably a couple other things which we we should take away from this. First, um, it should cause us also, I think, to trust in the Lord to provide for us. Now, there is, of course, a, a doctrine, an idea, a bad one, 
which tells us that if we want to be wealthy and prosperous, then let's pay God and then he'll, you know, give us everything that we need. You might say that there's, there's a correlation. Give a faith pledge to God, pay this amount of money, and when you do that, God will have no choice but to bless you and, and give you a bounty. Well, this treats God not like he is the Lord of all creation, but that he's like a vending machine. This places love of money over love of God. Simply put, if you're, if you're coming to Christ because you want to be wealthy and, and blessed in this world, then Christ isn't your God. Money is. And we ought not to take a view like that. That's not the point of God's blessing here. Not the point of, of him telling his people that he would bless them. It wasn't to say, pay me. And I will make you prosperous among men. The point here that God says is, trust me. Trust me. And I will provide what you need for life and godliness. So that's kind of one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is perhaps maybe we don't quite trust God as much as we should to provide for us. Now, of course, we, I think sometimes worry about bills and expenses and how we're going to make ends meet. Those are legitimate concerns, aren't they? We do have bills, we do have expenses, but can we trust God that he is the one who cares for us, that he is the one who clothes the lilies of the field, that he is the one who feeds the birds of the air? He can and he will provide for us. We, we ought to trust him to do that. We ought to trust him that he's given us employment to work hard in so that we can pay those bills. But at the end of the day, realizing completely that it is God who supplies those things for us and trusting in him to supply those things and to continue to supply those things for us. Finally, finally, and, and most importantly, once again, the Lord provides not only for our stomachs, not only for these temporal things which we need, but more importantly, he has given us Christ, the bread of heaven, the bread of life to give us spiritual life, to bring us from death into life, from darkness into light, to, to make us servants and children of the most high God. And so, as he called Israel, bring my tithes and offerings, let us give ourselves to him. All of ourselves. Full and entire. Not, not holding back any portion of our life. Not saying, well, God, you get, you know, one hour Sunday morning and one hour Sunday evening, but the rest of my life all belongs to me. Give God the entirety of your life. Serve the Lord with all that you have, with all that he's given you, in full trust and reliance that he cares for you and that he will provide for you. Indeed, that he has provided for you already, both body and soul, in Christ Jesus. 
Let us do those things for his glory and honor, even as we close now in prayer. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for this text. We thank you, Lord, that you call us to trust you. You called Israel to trust you, to demonstrate that trust by bringing the tithes and offerings and, and challenging them to, to put you to the test so that you could demonstrate your great provision and care for your people. Lord, we trust you to provide for us. We ask that you would continue to provide for us. You have you've given us those things which we need to live in this world. You have given us clothing and houses. You've given us food which we need. Oh, Father, we pray that you would continue to provide these things. And we thank you and we praise you most of all that you've given us Christ. That you have provided for us a savior, the bread of life, the water of life, in whom we have no spiritual need because he has given us his robes of righteousness. Lord, most of all, help us to trust in Christ, the savior of our souls, in whose name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Well, let's take a moment now to meditate on these things, to, to think about trusting God, to, to ponder the, the magnitude, the immensity, the glory of God's provision for his people, not only for providing food for us, which is quite wonderful in and of itself, but most of all for providing Christ for us, the most glorious and gracious of all gifts. Let's think on these things.